On this episode of China Unscripted, China is learning from Russia what not to do, and they're using it to plan their invasion of Taiwan. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Matt Ganesta. And I'm Shelley Zhang. Chris is taking the week off. So joining us today is Grant Newsham. He's a retired U.S. Marine colonel, and he's now a research fellow at the Center for Security Policy and a director at One Korea Network. Grant, thanks for joining us again. Well, thank you. Always glad to be here. Great. Well, it's it's great to have you. And, you know, it's been about a month since Russia invaded Ukraine, and it has not been nearly as easy for Vladimir Putin as he probably expected. So what do you think the Chinese Communist Party is thinking now? Well, you can bet they're thinking some of the same things Putin's thinking. You know, this isn't going quite the way everybody planned it. Uh, they're even uh, probably thinking what the, the U.S. government is thinking. Well, this isn't the way we thought it would work. It seems like everybody thought the, thought Ukraine would roll over in about three or four days. Uh, so you can bet that Xi Jinping and the Chinese are uh, going back to the drawing boards and figuring out what it is they need to do differently. And that's the important thing here is uh, there's a tendency in some quarters to think, well, the Chinese have seen what a hard time the Russians has, have had in Ukraine. So therefore, the Chinese or Xi Jinping is going to uh, lay off of Taiwan. He's just going to give up. It's too hard. But no, I don't think he has changed his intentions one bit uh, towards Taiwan. They're just going to try to do things differently. It's interesting you you put it like that, Grant, because I, I'm now thinking about how, you know, when the Soviet Union fell, the Chinese Communist Party wasn't like, oh, well, I guess we give up. We're done for. They're like, what What are the things that Gorbachev screwed up? What are the things the, the Soviets screwed up? Uh, and how can we never make those mistakes. And to you know a pretty large degree, the Communist Party has really come out on top. They haven't made those same mistakes, and they've survived an additional 30 years after the fall of the Soviet Union, after the end of history. So um, that's a little scary. Well, that's really the, oh, it's really the right way to look at it. And there's one sort of anecdote that uh, I use as a benchmark, uh, and it's from 40 years ago that when China was just coming out of that hellhole, that sort of yeah hellhole of uh, you know Maoist rule, Gang of Four, Cultural Revolution, that they they sent these three or four legal scholars, such as there is in China, uh, to Los Angeles to visit UCLA to learn about how a, a law school runs or how legal system runs. And I remember that the host who took them around, you know, these four guys and these little guys in. You know, the snazzy Mao suits and the hats and those guys. That he took them around L.A. and showed them around. And he, they drove by Chavez Ravine, where the Los Angeles Dodgers play. And one of the guys said, huh, we've heard that the Japanese play baseball, and they're pretty good at it, so we don't play it. But if China ever took it up, we would be really good if the Japanese are. And they have the same impression of the Russians, the peasants in suits, that well, the Russians may have had a hard time in Ukraine or with running an economy, everything else, but we're Chinese. We'll get it right. So that to me is, I've always remembered that. And as I said, that uh, the Chinese the Communist Party has not given up their intentions towards Taiwan uh, one bit. Do you think that the, you know, I think I've seen some commentary about how Russia's war in Ukraine is a deterrent for China invading Taiwan. Do you think people are overstating that deterrent? 
yes, I'm afraid so. Uh, as I say, they're going to have to do some things differently. You know, if you go down the list of things that the uh, that didn't happen the way the Russians and everyone else thought they would, that they almost all of them apply to uh, to an invasion of Ta- an assault on Taiwan. So, so what are they going to do differently? Do you think? Well, first, you know, they look at what ha- what has happened to the Russians. That they have, they were expecting that just by knocking Taiwan around a bit. You mean uh, the in Ita- Ukraine? That is. Yes, right? that's right. Yeah. Okay, it, and they would um, be able to remove the the leadership. They were to discombobulate entire command and control. You know, they they. I also thought that the Russian subversion, the covert action beforehand, would sort of prep the uh, the Ukrainians for a for a quick seizure. So they thought, just you know, hit them hard, get some troops in, get some armor in, uh, use your air force to shoot up the Ukrainians. Uh, that the the place would collapse, and then the West might complain, the Americans and the EU might complain, but certainly the EU wouldn't do anything because they're, you know, look at that, the Germans have no military, basically. Uh, they have just addicted to Russian oil with the Nord Stream pipelines. Uh, and NATO and Ukraine and the EU, they just can't get their acts together. So they, there'd be some complaining, but they'll get over it. And we'll be back to normal. And then you, you'll see that all the, the it's gone in a day, or maybe it's over a weekend, pretty much. People forget about it. We're back to business as usual. And that's what the Russians were expecting. I think that's kind of like what the, the Chinese were expecting uh, if they went after Taiwan. Uh, and yet what they didn't anticipate uh, really was that um, the this sort of sudden missile bombardment would, would uh, just cause the, the opposition uh, to, to give up. Uh, additionally, all of the political warfare, the subversion that's going on in Taiwan and has been for a long time with the, the media, academia, and the political classes uh, trying to intimidate and frighten the population, well, maybe that hasn't worked as well as they were counting on it. Uh, and then they see, well, maybe if we you know, say we do get an amphibious assault, uh, the amphibious force that gets across the strait, put it on Taiwan and get airborne forces in uh, to say seize an airfield, uh, maybe a port. Well, maybe that won't be enough. Maybe Taiwan, the Taiwanese will fight back. Uh, and they were also expecting, as I said, this, their missiles to actually lay waste to Taiwan and just put the, the Taiwan military on its back. Uh, so they could pretty much just walk in. Well, the Russians shot some missiles around and that didn't you know, seem to work all, as well as anyone expected. Uh, they also were not expecting the Americans to stand up, or the Europeans for that matter, and look at what's happened. You've got this supply line uh, pumping in weapons into Ukraine to allow the Ukrainians to kill Russians on almost an industrial scale. And this is being done once again uh, to um, in, in the uh, face of a nuclear-armed country, the Russians. So maybe that nuclear card doesn't work quite as well as they expected, or it has to be played differently. Uh, so there's a number of things that you know that the Chinese are looking at and say, hmm, if we uh, look at what Russia did to Ukraine, all the problems they had, that we're going to have to do things differently. And I've just laid out a, a number of things that 
Uh, you know, one of say another thing that is, is really as important is the Chinese did not expect the incompetence of the Russian troops in uh, the Russian military in Ukraine, uh, and not having terrible logistics, not being able to get air support and ground operations coordinated. Seeming, you look at the drone uh, videos of the the infantry response to when a armored column gets attacked, and they appear to have no what are called immediate action drills. Uh, basically, the troops run to the other side, away from where the shooting is. Uh, the um, Ukrainian internet is still up and running. And you see President Zelensky on the news all the time, you know, as, as the face of resistance. And the more the Ukrainians have fought back, well, the more the world, the civilized world, has been willing to help them. So all of these lessons apply to an attack on Taiwan. And then there's also this uh, recent sinking of the Russian ship, the Moskva, down in the Black Sea by a couple of anti-ship missiles fired by the Ukrainians. Well, you can see the obvious applicability to that uh, if uh, the Chinese are thinking of sending an amphibious force across uh, the Taiwan Strait. So all of these things have to be addressed. If you're say, a Chinese planner, if you're Xi Jinping, you're gonna. it's not like he's going to be down there with his sleeves rolled up and a couple of number two pencils and working out the plans. Uh, but the PLA planners are going to have to address all these things. And there's a, just as much a sort of a military, uh, you know, there's a military aspect, this, there's a political aspect, psychological, there's financial, economic, uh, that all go into his calculations for Taiwan. And this applied before the invasion of Ukraine, but it, it applies now, but now it just has to be redone. So if you were in charge of the People's Liberation Army. Uh, like, you know, you've talked about all the things that Russia did that failed, but what are some things that you as the invading force would do uh, to take Taiwan, knowing what you know now about the potential failures? Oh boy, well, I, you know, if I was the lead planner of the PLA, I would um, defect and set up in a house <laughs> in Santa Barbara on the coast uh, you know, but, but if, if you if yeah. you thought you were you know one of the good guys, mm -hmm. uh, well, the thing why you you mentioned these things and, and you, know, you as I say, you, there's there's an aspect of this that you don't really want to give anyone ideas, uh, but most of these things are figure outable, and you don't almost don't even have to have military experience to do it. So it's not as if I'm saying anything that nobody can figure out. But also, when you look at how you know, say you would do it right, if, or do it wrong, actually, but do it how you would uh, look at the Taiwan problem after Ukraine if you are a Chinese planner. Uh, that it also gives the other side, the, the free world, the civilized world, it gives them some ideas of what to prepare for. So that's it's just as helpful as a, a sort of a thought process for defenders in Taiwan, for the Americans defending Taiwan, as it is uh, as an, at any advantage you could possibly give the, the Chinese. But first thing, a couple, just thinking it through. You know, one of the things that happened in Ukraine that sort of made life difficult for the Russians was the Americans kept uh, revealing the, the movements they were, the Russians were taking to get their military in order to attack Taiwan. You remember that you hear these, they weren't the kind of leaks, but more announcements saying, well, the Russians are going to attack on Thursday at 3 a.m., you know, and apparently the Americans were sharing intelligence with everybody on the planet, except me, of course. But you know, they apparently even <laughs> gave it to China. the Russians. 
they apparently gave it to the Chinese. And, and I would say, you know, sometimes it thing seems as if we want to lose. Uh, but, but what you did have was the uh, Americans revealing some of the, the preparations the Russians were taking. And what that, the, the one thing it does do, it, allow, it prevents the other side from setting up a narrative. And the Russians were trying to say, well, these Ukrainian Nazis, are gonna, they're going to murder Russians, so we have to go. And we don't really want to. In fact, the Russians even said, well, we're pulling out now. But the Americans say, by revealing that information, they do make it harder for the other side to set up a sort of a, a narrative of lies, uh, basically. And also it does help. It doesn't help uh, to have uh, your opponent know where your troop movements are, where you're assembling and all that sort of thing. So what the, the Chinese are probably going to learn from that is that they may need to go from something like a standing start or use deception uh, so that the Americans don't, and I refer to the Americans generally as the leaders of the free world, so the Americans can't see what's going on. Uh, they don't have the time um, to get ready to get their, their allies to get Taiwan prepared for things. So I would expect a very quick assault. Uh, also, you would probably see the the Chinese use a lot more uh, missiles, bombs, a lot more force in a, in a very fast, uh, concentrated uh, attack, whereas the Russians didn't really seem to use everything they had. You know, some of the, the missile attacks, the bombings, it, it was kind of uh, small, actually. They didn't hit all that many places, uh, and it seemed as they under they miscalculated. So you, the Chinese are going to would probably use a whole lot of stuff uh, and you know hit all sorts of targets, not just something designed to rattle the Taiwanese, but to really uh, you, know, you know rain fire and brimstone in a lot more places in a lot more ways than the Russians did. Uh, additionally, you're going to um, you know, you're going to have to do something about uh, air defenses. You know, Taiwan's, the Ukrainian air defense, amazingly, to, is still operating and operating well enough to cause the, the Russians some real problems. And without having the ability to really control the air and use that in direct support of uh, ground operations, uh, it's a huge disadvantage. So you, the, the Chinese will pay special attention to uh, Taiwanese air defenses. Uh, additionally, the you know, every time you see President Zelensky appear on the uh, on the the internet or on the news or what have you, that and also you see all these pictures of all the the devastation. It looks like the you know, the Mongolians have rolled through someplace, but it looks like these old World War II video uh, shows where you have absolutely demolished cities, you have bodies lying all around. Uh, that. This sort of thing has really rallied the, say, the civilized world on, on Ukraine's behalf. Um, you have all these videos of Ukrainian tanks and armored vehicles getting blown up and you know, dead Russian soldiers. Well, that kind of makes it look like the, the Ukrainians are doing pretty well. It bolsters the resistance by Ukrainians, and it, it makes people more willing to support Ukraine. So you have that electronic aspect of the fight. And the, the Russians, are, the Chinese, are going to try to completely shut off uh, Ukraine uh, electronically. Uh, and that's obviously the internet, communications, maybe hit the undersea cables, uh, take out any satellite coverage that the, the, Ukraine, that the Taiwanese have, and maybe interfere with some of the American 
uh, satellite coverage. But you want to, if you're Chinese, you want to, as I say, isolate electronically as much as you can, because that is something that's given the Ukrainians a huge advantage. Um, you have also uh, will want to uh, sanctions-proof your economy, if you can, to the extent possible. Uh, you've uh, And China has a somewhat different uh, dynamic when it comes to an economy than the Russians do. Uh, so the you know, one of the, the big things that the Chinese have been trying, but unsuccessfully actually, to do is to uh, make themselves less vulnerable to the U.S. dollar, to sanctions applied that cut them off from the U.S. dollar network, for example. Uh, but back to the military end of it, uh, the Chinese are going to have to figure out some way to eliminate the, the anti-ship missile threat, uh, the, the sea mine threat. Uh, from the Taiwanese that makes it very hard uh, for an amphibious force that's trying to attack. The Russians have been trying to slip in, I think, an amphibious assault somewhere down on the south coast, and they haven't been able to do it. So the Chinese are going to have to put their heads together and try and figure that out. And once again, you have to figure out a way to uh, lessen uh, any you know, sort of capabilities that the, the Taiwanese have uh, for resisting a, or successfully uh, hitting back against an amphibious assault. Uh, and also the, the air defense aspect I mentioned earlier, if you're going to try to get helicopters in or airborne forces or, or forces for to bring in resupply, to bring in follow-on troops, you're going to have to do something about that. Uh, so they're, you know, the, those are the things that they're, they're going to have to, to concentrate on. Uh, and they're going to, of course, be counting on their friends in America to sort of uh, tell sort of influence in Washington on Wall Street just to say, look, this is an internal squabble uh, between the Chinese people. We don't really want to get into it. It's too much uh, risk for the for our economy. Uh, we don't want Americans to die on this behalf on sort of uh, in a war like this. Uh, so they're going to play that political warfare angle, both not just in Taiwan, but in in America as well. Uh, and that's something that they've got to figure out because it hasn't been working as well lately as they, as it had for an awful long time. Uh, so those are some of the considerations, and I'm sure I'll think a few, a few in a, more in a minute, but you've, uh, you look at what the Russians have done and the, the uh, Chinese, as they will be doing the calculations to try to uh, overcome those. It's interesting, you know, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is a primarily kinetic war. But what you're saying is that Chinese Communist Party's invasion of Taiwan is likely to be definitely kinetic in this, and maybe in a, in a heavier sense, but also have a, a pretty strong non-kinetic aspect to it. I mean, I think the Russians tried that as well, right? But maybe they're just not as good at it. I mean, they're not as good at They're propaganda. not the Chinese. I mean, you know... <laughs> We're so but, much better. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. it, you know, I, I do admire the Chinese Communist Party's like healthy level of self-confidence, right? It's like, you know what? Other people couldn't do it, but we can, you know, like that, that's a good place to be for like a normal person, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, you know, you know, it's the, you know, if the Japanese can play baseball well, and we, even though we've never played it, we'd be really good at it. Uh, that there is this hubris and hubris, desperation, or what, call it what you will, that the uh, that you see on the Chinese side. So I th think that they would try to, as I said, I think they're just as committed as ever. But that political, psychological 
aspect of the war really is something that you know needs to be addressed as much as the hardware end. And it, in the, the U.S. side, as mentioned, and this is widely known, that you know, we have a couple generations of MBA graduates who've you know, made their their entire life has been about deindustrializing the United States and enriching themselves and China uh, in, in, for the short term. And that has given the Chinese huge influence in, in America. And you remember there, when during the Trump administration, there was that leaked video of a Chinese fellow, one of the a high flyer who was speaking to a group, I think it was back in China, saying that, you know, after Trump did all these things, we called up all our friends on Wall Street and in the in the administ- you know the in DC and and they couldn't do anything but the point is that for so long the chinese had got used to the idea that they would have their friends in washington cause the americans to back off uh, you know they the political the economic interests were just too great it was argued but uh, between china and uh, the united states so it really you just the americans just couldn't get involved here taiwan was a dispensable irritant if you ask some people in the uh, in the State Department and dispense and academia to a to the more important relationship between China uh, and the United States, and that was how it's looked at was looked at. So the political angle is one that's pretty. It's going to be hard for the Chinese to to play, but they may just bite their tongue and say we don't really care. You know, certainly the reputation doesn't matter uh, to the Chinese as behaviors as shown. It's interesting that you were mentioning this because I feel like this is what they're trying to do now in Europe um, with the EU in terms of, well, um, trying to convince Europe that China wants to help in some way with Ukraine and Russia, and it's fine for China to be neutral and we're neutral and trying to convince them that they're neutral when they're supporting Russia. And it seems to that the Europeans aren't buying that message as well as the Chinese Communist Party was hoping they would. Uh, that, that's right. They, it, it's really surprised me and probably a lot of other people just how the Europeans have, by and large, banded together. Uh, you know, even the Italians and the Germans, and you know, for example, you have the, the Swedes and the Finns who are now keen to get into NATO. This has all really been a surprise to a lot of people. And, you know, say China must be wondering just how good they are at the political warfare game. They actually are pretty good at it. Uh, but in Europe, the, the response has, has really been a surprise. You, know, you saw, for example, after uh, the, the Russians invaded Ukraine, that the BP, British Petroleum, pulled out almost right away of a 20, like $25 billion operation in Russia, just without batting an eye. And the financial sanctions which have been put on Russia have surprised uh, every a lot of people. Uh, the economic sanctions, they're of course not nearly as strong as they should be. There's too many carve-outs. But nonetheless, the willingness of Westerners in particular to engage in what you might call self-harm, uh, so economic self, self-harm, has maybe raised some doubts on the, the Chinese side um, you know, maybe they need to reapproach it or just start paying their quislings more. Uh, it's hard to say. And even the Japanese have, you know, for them, have taken on a sort of a pretty strict approach uh, to the Russians. And the Japanese are probably even more frightened of the, the Chinese than they are uh, of the Russians. But, but there's also one uh, aspect to these both conflicts, are one real, one potential, and that's the nuclear angle. And you know, remember it was a sort of a 
rule of thumb or common wisdom that you know, we wouldn't really do too much to a nuclear armed and it wouldn't, if it was a nuclear armed country involved in a fight, well, there's real limits to how much uh, America would do just because of the nuclear threat. Well, you look at what they're doing in Ukraine and it shows that they're willing to go a lot farther uh, than, than uh, anyone imagined. Uh, and you know, as, as I mentioned there, we're supplying weapons and Europeans are, and even some others are, uh, offering up weapons that are used to kill Russians. That is, there's no other way to put it. And this, despite the fact uh, the Russian is a nuclear-armed uh, state. And Putin, of course, is threatening the use of nuclear weapons also. But nonetheless, that hasn't entirely caused the, the Americans and everyone else just to back off. Not at all. So China must be wondering how well this nuclear card is going to play. Uh, if they go after Taiwan, because uh, and it, it could be they, you know, I don't know how they're going to uh, come out on that, but they just might decide, well, the Russians didn't play it well enough or hard enough, and we will. So we're going to uh, threaten to use them, tell the Americans that, you know, we're going to stand, but, you know, we're, uh, the Russians may have uh, held back, but we're not. So, t- you know, are you willing to take the gamble, America? Uh and, you know, they could, who knows, you know, say there's any number of options that they could have. Maybe they could, just, say, fire a tactical nuclear weapon into the, the ocean east of Taiwan as a message to the Americans, stand back. And that includes no resupply. So and as part of any Taiwanese attack or Chinese attack on Taiwan, you could expect a pretty serious uh, naval and air blockade. Uh, and as they would learn from Ukraine, that you know, it's a uh, good thing to keep uh, your opponent from being resupplied. And since all the resupply has to come mostly by sea, some by air, uh, that you can imagine that would be a part of any Chinese thinking. But the nuclear part, I say that is something that when you stop back and think about it, especially if you're, say, my age, you kind of um, you know, almost have to scratch your head because we'd always thought that, or a lot of people thought, well, these are theoretical. Nobody would actually think of using them. And now there is some real consideration that the, Chi- the Russians just might use one. So the Chinese will calibrate off of that, and they will say they will play that card, uh, I am sure. You know, it's one way that you try to isolate, you try to intimidate your opponents uh, if uh, in a Taiwan scenario. Uh, so the, the world really had this is something that very different that's happened just in the last month and a half. Well, you know, that, that kind of brings us to uh, Japan. And you've you've written a, a bit about Japan recently. Uh, Japan obviously is like the opposite uh, of a nuclear threatening power, right? They're they're a country that since World War II has been uh, essentially not only peaceful but written into their constitution. They cannot have a, an attack military force. And there's a, there's a certain term for that, but they only have a self defense force. They cannot go to war against someone else. Uh, They can only defend themselves, right? Uh, But there's some thinking that is changing in Japan in light of uh, just recent things in China the last few years and especially uh, Russia, Ukraine. So so what's going on there in Japan? Well, Xi Jinping has managed to accomplish what successive U.S. administrations have not, and that's to get the Japanese to think seriously about defense. Uh, the 
Japanese approach for a long time was to either ignore problem, potential problems or leave the hard work up to the Americans. Uh, but now you're actually starting to see the, a debate or discussion, if, and I think it's actually kind of decided on the Japanese side that you know, they will fight to defend themselves. Uh, the Japanese self-defense force is considerable, but operationally it needs uh, improvement to be able to do uh, operations better, say joint operations. Um, it needs some additional hardware to fill in some gaps. It needs to be able to work with the Americans better. But it really does have the basis of a, a nice potent military force. And it, it always has had that, but they preferred to pretend it, it really isn't. Uh, the, but the, the Japanese have militarized a long time ago, or remilitarized, but they need to improve what they have. Uh, so, but it's that psychological part of the equation that the Chinese have been so successful at is over the last decade or so, they have applied such pressure on the, on the, the Japanese that the, the Japanese have gradually come, and I say the Japanese, it's the political class, the official class, uh, the public has already has, has been there for a long time. Uh, they've come around to the idea that they have to fight and defend themselves and they cannot just rely on the United States. Uh, so that is a big change. And you see the way they um, say the Japanese and the Americans are training together for things that sure look a lot like fighting a war. Uh, the Japanese are sort of fortifying some of their islands down in the south with the necessary sorts of weapons. Uh, there's talk of doubling the defense budget, which they should have done a long time ago. Uh, but there's the psychological change that, that Japan has finally woken up, that they live in a dangerous neighborhood. Uh, the Chinese want uh, Japanese territory, and they also want to teach the, the Japanese a lesson. Uh, there's this immense resentment bubbling up in Chinese psyches uh, that, it, you know, for past uh, supposed historical wrongs, and they want to, say, teach the oni a lesson. You know, if you, there's a Chinese will often use this common ex this expression uh, that refers to the Japanese as like demons or the dwarf pirates. Uh, and it's almost, it's this sort of crude vulgarity like you would have heard in West Texas in 1950 talking about uh, racial minorities. Uh, but that's uh, just sort of how it's looked at by a nice slice of the Chinese uh, population, how they look at Japan. So Japan is, as it has woken, but it's got a long ways to go. But nonetheless, it's finally, I think the Americans might just have a, a real partner. But you combine the two militaries, the two capabilities, and it is impressive, and it is something that would give the, the Chinese a pause. Uh, and they, there's been an expression, we used to hear it all the time from Japanese officers uh, like 15 years ago, and it is that Taiwan's defense is Japan's defense. So there's, and if you look at the map, that makes perfect sense. Uh, and that's so part of the Jap some Japanese have understood it, but now it's really widely recognized. Uh, but one thing that you are seeing is the, the Japanese leadership is, as they usually do, they're looking to see what the Americans are going to do. And they will calibrate off of that, uh, which is unfortunate because Japan ought to take the initiative. But that's there. They've gotten used to the idea of sort of looking from behind, seeing what the big guys are doing and then following along. But I think the Japanese would indeed uh, provide a you know, considerable support and maybe even pitch in uh, in the event of a Taiwan scenario. So we're going to put a map up on screen to show that region. What do you mean by Taiwan's defense is Japan's defense? Mm -hmm. 
Um, what I mean is the if you look at the map, you have this the Japanese archipelago stretching from north to south. Just below that, like 60 miles from the, the last Japanese island is Taiwan. That is right next door. So it'd be like Coney Island is uh, New York's defense. No, not quite. But um, no, the enemy can take Coney Island. <laughs> yeah, as long as they don't take Nantucket. But the um, but the, the what you have if Taiwan say comes under Chinese control, at that point you have uh, put the Chinese military in a position to outflank Japanese defenses. And they can get around the rear. If you head east from Taiwan over the sea, over the, the airspace, you suddenly you are behind Japan's defenses. The, the Chinese military starts operating to the east, up to the north. Uh, they can surround Japan, and Japan could find itself isolated from the United States, from anywhere else. And a good chunk, like 80% of Japan's uh, energy supplies, flow through the South China Sea. Taiwan sits aside the, the, astride the South China Sea. And so it is in a position to interdict, cut those sea lanes uh, as well, and the sea lanes to the east also. So that's the uh, sort of one of the immediate problems that Japan faces if they do find Taiwan under Japanese, under Taiwan Chinese control, is that you're, say, they're, they're facing west pretty much to try and ward off the. Uh, Chinese aggressors, and then you have Taiwan down to the south, then you have the Philippines after that. It's this so-called first island chain. If you think of it as, say, a castle wall being breached, uh, if your part of the wall is still up, but the part next to you has collapsed and the enemy's pouring through, uh, you can see the, uh, I think you can sort of conceptualize the problem. And then there's the psychological aspect of, you know, a China that has managed to bring to heel 23, 24 million uh, free people, and the Japanese couldn't do anything about it. The Americans couldn't do anything about it. Uh, you'd find most countries in Asia very quickly trying to cut the best deal they could uh, with the People's Republic of China. And once again, that isolates uh, Japan, puts it in a very precarious uh, position. Do you think that the Chinese Communist Party would go so far as to attack some of those Japanese islands that are close to Taiwan? I think they would. Uh, I, um, it, it can be argued. There's different ways to argue it. And if you, you know, gave me 20 bucks an hour, I could probably come up with uh, a reason to say they wouldn't. The one that they wouldn't, the reason they wouldn't is because they don't uh, want to bring in the Japanese. They don't want to hit the Americans and bring in the Americans. But if they ignore it, they will. Uh, then they can say, tell both of those countries, stand back. We're just settling this internal matter. But as a practical matter, I think they would have to. Uh, they would uh, need to sort of protect their left flank, as it is, and also to make it harder for the Americans to and the Japanese to, to intervene. So I would expect that there would be attacks on Japanese territory in the event of a Chinese assault on Taiwan. But also what, another thing that uh, the Chinese will, of course, have noticed is that the Everyone is able, in Ukraine is that the, the civilized world, Europe, the EU, is able to focus just on Ukraine. There's nothing to distract them. So what you would expect, actually, in the event of a Taiwan scenario, is you would expect North Korea to launch some major provocation that forces the Americans 
forces the Japanese and certainly forces the South Koreans to sort of look west at the Korean Peninsula, devote attention, resources to that. Uh, you might even get the Russians cooperating. Uh, so all this prevents the, the Americans, the Japanese, from focusing on Taiwan exclusively. So that would be you know, something that, you know, they, uh, unfortunately, the Chinese have probably figured out from looking at the Ukraine uh, situation. And of course, any time Kim Jong-un, the North Korean dictator, launches a missile, uh, if sets, does a nuclear test, he does that with Chinese uh, permission. Uh, if, the, if China wanted to, it could turn off the spigots, uh, the, the economic support, financial support uh, to North Korea and close the place down in an afternoon practically. So everything it's not as if North Korea is this independent actor. What it does, it suits Chinese needs. So when the time comes with Taiwan, as they do expect some distractions uh, here and there, uh, courtesy of the North Koreans, the Russians, and probably the Iranians getting involved as well. It's interesting you say that because I think one of the things that's happened in Ukraine is the, you know, the U.S. and Europe have been very careful to, sure, they're sending weapons to Ukraine, but they're not committing troops. They're not actually, they don't want to go in, NATO doesn't want to go in because then that could spark a wider conflict. But it sounds like what you're saying is essentially that the Chinese Communist Party is not afraid to start with a wider conflict. I think that's right. From their perspective, that may actually be an advantage because you don't want your opponents to be able to focus on you exclusively. Uh, the, and the, I mentioned the, the nuclear card earlier, and, and it's not as if that's being ignored, not at all. In fact, the, the reason, the avowed reason why American forces aren't in uh, Ukraine, Western forces, is because of that nuclear threat. Uh, the American chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Secretary of Defense, uh, General Austin, uh, said in front of the House Armed Services Committee the other day that, well, the reason why we haven't got troops there is because Russia's nuclear armed. And we don't want to do that uh, when, the, when there's an opponent in there that is has nuclear weapons. And unfortunately, I understand their thinking, but I think it was poorly articulated. They might have even been better not to articulate it at all. Because uh, what you might hear if you're sitting in Beijing is, or Beijing is that, well, hmm, if uh, the other side has nuclear weapons, didn't the Americans just say that they won't send troops in? Uh, that's not really what you want the, the other side to hear. Uh, and then the uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan was asked a few days later, uh, well, is America going to fight to defend uh, Taiwan if China attacks? And he says, well, we're going to make sure they don't attack. He didn't answer that question. And what you're doing is you're perhaps raising some um, doubts in about American resolve, commitment, when faced with a, a nuclear-armed opponent. Uh, and, you know, logically, when faced with a real threat of nuclear escalation, well, maybe the Americans will back down. Even before Ukraine, I mean, there were people writing opinion pieces I saw in Western media about how we should not intervene in a if China attacks Taiwan because of the nuclear weapons. Like that, that argument was pretty much already out there, right? It's always been there, um, but it is it's unusual to hear uh, sort of top officials comment on it this way. And I think if you ask them about it, they would say, no, 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 we didn't really mean that. Uh, but nonetheless, that's what, what people hear. And it is one interpretation, and the doubt is always there. 
as to whether or not, as to how much we will do. And you could uh, imagine an opponent, if it smells weakness, if it sees uh, its adversary is confused, uh, that it keeps doubling down. You know, it says, well, I am going to, you know, I am going to use these things. Do you feel lucky today? And you know, say it does, as I mentioned, throw out a tactical nuclear weapon somewhere and, you know, and you know, try to scare us off. That this is it's really high stakes poker. And if the other side keeps doubling down, uh, you had better be ready to play that game. Because uh, we have, there's the tendency has always been to think, well, nobody will ever take it too far. Uh, but you do have a couple of regimes, at least on this planet, that uh, are willing to take it that far, it seems. So the, the, the free world had better sort of have its wits about it uh, whenever what's coming uh, next comes. And you know, that, but that uh, House Armed Services Committee testimony, I thought it deserved a little more attention than it got uh, because it was uh, sort of a curious statement to say. It um, did bring to mind, of course, Dean Acheson, the Secretary of State in 1950, uh, making that speech. Uh, it was an obscure speech to some gathering in Washington, effectively saying that the he didn't that the Americans didn't think the Korean Peninsula was in its direct defensive perimeter. Well, guess how the other side heard that? And of course, it's been now nowadays the the commentariat has parsed his language to say, well, he didn't really say that or didn't really mean it. Well. That's how it was interpreted, apparently. Uh, you do have to be very careful. Uh, but this is, as I say, it's a type of warfare that we haven't really had to deal with uh, for forever. Uh, and we, we, so you, we do need to sort of have some pretty clear thinking about that and clear statements also. Now, you brought up Korea. So I want to talk a little bit about Korea and how their sort of perspective on China has changed in recent years, and in particular... Uh, the the new president who was elected and he'll take office in uh, next month. So, how has their thinking on China changed recently? Well, the, the interesting thing about Korea is that there's been no great love for China uh, for a while. Uh, it's partly it's instinctive and partly it's you know, historic. And anthropologists could probably explain it better. But uh, there's the Korean public has always been looked askance at the Chinese and. Uh, particularly with this flood of Chinese investment, Chinese tourists, uh, that sort of hasn't, you know, made their feelings any a whole lot warmer. Right, especially the, after the Chinese state-run media claimed that kimchi has been part, part of, of China. China since ancient times. Well, I mean, yeah. that, I mean, that's the big uproar in, in South Korea. <laughs> they, well, what they said was even more offensive in a certain way because they they were just like kimchi is a type of palzai, which is like pickled vegetables right. in Chinese, right? So it's like not just saying that kimchi belongs to China, but like kimchi is not a thing almost. That like it's only like a subcategory of this wider thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, you know, we, we laugh about that, but that does give you plenty of insights into Korean thinking uh, about China. But uh, more to the immediate uh, question, uh, the previous South Korean administration of Moon Jae-in they were basically pro-China. Uh, they were trying to sort of cuddle up to the Chinese and uh, ingratiate themselves. And there's you know, that was in line with Moon Jae-in's political leanings and his a lot of his party's political leanings. Uh, but the the new movement, the the new uh, administration, the conservative uh, President Yoon, uh, they're they're simply I'd say more normal 
in that they say, you know, we're not picking a fight with anyone, but we, we do have our interests and we know what we think. And we, you know, we're glad to deal with China, but we're not going to count out to them. And that appears to be a, a widely supported uh, position. And he's been much more clear that the United States is, in fact, a key ally of South Korea uh, than his predecessor was, who didn't really think it was. Uh, but that has been a, a shift in uh, the, uh, sort of the Korean political world lately, or just uh, the other, uh, in March was the, the election. Uh, so that is a change, but it's worth keeping in mind that the previous administration uh, was the Democratic Party of Korea. They have an overwhelming majority in the National Assembly, which is their Congress. So that makes it harder for the Korean president, even if he's a conservative, to uh, to govern and do get what do what he wants. But he does have uh, the authority to sort of sort of set the tone for things, and there is a lot that he can do uh, to draw Korea, South Korea, back from uh, that sort of uh, unhealthy relationship with China. But it, as you've noted, it is interesting that the that the the men on the street level there is no great love for uh, the the People's Republic of China or in some respects, even Chinese. Uh, and so there's, that is a big shift that's taken place uh, in, in South Korea. It's also worth noting that, you know, if you remember after the, uh, the previous president, Moon was elected, and then the National Assembly ele- uh, results, election results were very pro, were heavily in favor of his party, that the foreign media was, of course, uh, writing that conservatives are dead in South Korea, they're going extinct, uh, well, apparently not. And once again, you know, you read the, the foreign media coverage of a place, and it's often good to discount it by a, a certain uh, healthy bit. Uh, but it's the uh, Korean sort of political world is just as complex as anywhere, and is as much a range of thinking as you'll find anywhere. But it has uh, bought itself, owing to a very cl- close, uh, closely run election victory, it has bought itself uh, some time. Um, to sort of prevent that leftward lean and also northward lean uh, because the previous administration was, in fact, kind of pro-North Korea. Uh, So that is a big change. And I think the Biden administration must have really breathed a sigh of relief when they saw the election results in South Korea because the, the team Biden doesn't need any more problems to deal with. I think it's one of the things that between the China-South Korea relationship too, is that China had a lot of maybe economic influence in South Korea because there was so much tourism. There was so much people coming over to Korea, like buying things. And now with the coronavirus, it's very hard for Chinese people to leave China anymore. So then you kind of almost cut off that economic influence without meaning to really but there's there's less of that now. And I think also, you know, they've also shot themselves in the foot in the last five or six years, like with the THAAD thing and, you know, trying to protest South Korea economically. And uh, all of that leads to just more decoupling economically between two countries. But then that is what really gave you that influence over that country. No, that was uh, a big change. You know, you mentioned THAAD, and that's that anti-missile uh, system that the Americans put in in 2016-17, and the, the Chinese howled, and they cut off sort of business with uh, South Korea. They stopped tourists from going. It was a huge economic hit 
to South Korea, which nobody liked, but it didn't make the Korea, South, the Chinese any pop, more popular. Also, sort of more under the radar at that time, that there was a lot of Chinese investment into South Korea. It was kind of out of control, buying up all sorts of things. And there were plans for something like 20 or 30 Chinatowns being set up all over uh, South Korea, plans for these um, sort of retirement homes or second home villages for rich Chinese people to come to South Korea. And none of that did much for China's image uh, in South Korea. Uh, and the, there's, um, you know, so, so what the, the previous administration was trying to do in South Korea really wasn't all that popular. Uh, and it actually was a political issue that was one of the things that uh, contributed to the Conservative Party candidate uh, winning the last election. I remember I went to South Korea with Chris in 2016. At the time, one of the things that, that we observed is that the Korean media was heavily influenced by China, you know, between uh, pressure from the government, although that was a different government then, uh, and like sort of the, the like the broadcast deals that KBS, Korea's big uh, state, uh, quasi-state-run broadcaster, like they had deals in China, you know, programming deals and whatnot. And so there was a lot of, you know, when the media is influenced by China, it's that has a huge impact on the public and to a degree politics because politics is responsive to the public. And if the public is responsive to the media, and then if politics can control the media, you see like there's this loop, right? And so that what what I kind of garnered from that is that the Chinese Communist Party was pretty successful, at least at the time, at using South Korean media kind of as its weapon in Korea. Yeah, you've described it correctly, and it did go beyond when you were there. Uh, that it it was uh, really just these um, unhealthy tie-ups between uh, South Korean media and Chinese uh, media, uh, but also the the previous Korean administration was able to bring a good chunk of the mainstream media under his control, and this very so this ally, alliance with China, the tie-ups was actually something that kind of suited his interests, suited the administration's interests, and they thought it was good. Uh, but there has still been a degree of sort of conservative media that still exists uh, in South Korea, and it's pretty powerful and pretty active. But the, you had, with the previous South Korean administration, when it came to ties with China, North Korea, uh, that they were trying to take the country, I think, where most people didn't want to go, even people who voted for the, the Democratic Party in Korea. So it was that was that was an interesting part of the dynamic is that most South Koreans didn't want to uh, sort of kowtow to the, to the Chinese and all this Chinese in, sort of inflow of ideas of people of money uh, that was alarming to many Koreans well be well outside the just conservative circles. So the, the the previous administration really was run by a hardcore coterie of uh, some pretty ideological. Uh, leftists uh, who were intent on transforming Korea, as I said, in a way that was not entirely popular with most people. It's interesting because I feel like that is a dynamic that follows the Chinese Communist Party where it goes in the world. Like when you're talking about like this 
group of the political elite of this one party who were pro-China and pro-CCP and wanted to do more deals, but the population itself was not for that. It sounds similar to what's happening in the Solomon Islands now. Um, it sounds similar to what's happening in some of these smaller European countries that where there's been a lot of economic um, money influence, Belt and Road stuff coming in from China into Eastern Europe, for example. Um, so it's interesting that like in the process of trying to establish their influence, they're actually undermining it. Right. But they're, but it's like every country, I mean, we're talking about South Korea, obviously it's like, it, it reminds me in many ways of the US in the sense that, that you have a political elite class and it's kind of like a financial slash political elite that represents uh, their own interests. And they're not necessarily the interests of the population. And it's really, I don't think the US is a kind of, you know, Democrat Republican split really in the way that that it's made out to be on Twitter. It's more like you've got, you know, these these billionaires and the and you have this elite political class that kind of have their their interests, and a lot of them are in China. Uh, and there's just not a whole lot that the population can do with voting sometimes because whoever they vote for with either party uh, potentially could be part of that system. And I don't know if that's the same with South Korea. Um, it's a little different. It, well, it's similar. It's similar enough, put it that way. But it is trying to, and what you've described is Chinese trying to get into a country, trying to control it, get political influence uh, via, from the top down. You try to get the people at the top hooked. Uh, you, you get them on your payroll. You get them uh, addicted. And it doesn't really seem to matter much from their perspective, well, what the, the rest of the population thinks. Now, this is never, say, the Chinese coming and trying to sell their system from the ground up. But rather, you find the people at the top, you, so you get them uh, hooked on Chinese money, uh, the prospects of more money. And that seems to be the nature of so much uh, of China's influence. When you look at it, it's really just at the very top or in this small constituency that has some direct uh, benefit from uh, sort of Chinese largesse. Uh, it's rarely ide ideological anymore. In fact, almost South Korea was probably one rare example where it was where Moon Jae-in, the former president, and the people right around them, if you listen to what they said, you listen, look at their track records of what they've written, what they've spoken about, uh, that these were guys who kind of were pro-China, pro-communist. Uh, you know, I mentioned Moon Jae-in. Uh, you know, he, he uh, wrote an autobiography a while back, and he described himself as euphoric when he heard the Americans had lost in Vietnam. Uh, I imagine he was something even more than euphoric when we got driven out of Afghanistan. Uh, but that's the, so in one sense, South Korea is kind of unusual in that you do have some ideologues running the place. Most places, it's the, the Chinese cash that does the, uh, does the talking. And once again, the Pacific Islands, the Pacific, and I would suggest even in the United States, uh, that it's something similar. If, uh, you know, China had all the economic wherewithal with Russia. I don't think it would have anywhere near the political political support in Washington. Uh, but you do have this donor class that, as you said, that 
it, it almost operates independent of the vast, the, the body of, of, of the citizenry. And it, you know, they almost seem to do things that don't really have the public in mind, but rather have this personal interest in couched as statesmanship uh, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense sometimes. But I think you, it's a, what you have described is a very important way to, to uh, sort of part of the equation uh, to keep in mind is that the Chinese do come in from the top and you're buying off the, say, the, the elite classes, the business classes in certain places. And once you've done that, that you, what happens below that is, isn't all that big a deal until it, until it is, because it always leads to friction. It leads to internal unrest and potentially civil war. And you know, the Solomon Islands, as you've mentioned, is a, a good example of this uh, dynamic at play. Right. Well, so speaking of the Solomon Islands, so uh, Prime Minister Sogavari is one of those elite class people who has a lot of Chinese interests. And he, you know, was involved in switching diplomatic relations from Taiwan to China and which they call the switch there in the Solomon Islands. And and there were big protests there last November, uh, a po you know, calling it was kind of two things, as I understand it. Uh, one is uh anti-China investment uh, in the Solomon Islands, and two, wanting Sogavari to step down. Uh, but he kind of used a Chinese slush fund that he had gotten to kind of uh, pull himself out of the no confidence vote. And, uh, and now he's just signed a security deal, or it's been public what he signed uh, with, with China, which uh, could bring in troops to protect him from his own people protesting. Uh, yes, that's you know, what you've watched happen is something most people in the Solomon Islands don't want to have happen. Uh, and it is the result of this elite capture. So that's the, 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 the SAT word. Uh, it means you find the guys with some uh, in the right positions and you buy them, pay them up, buy them off. And logging companies with Ch basically Chinese owned uh, have had huge influence in the Solomons for a long time. Uh, and they're not popular because they are rapacious. They just destroy the environment. They, the locals get no benefits out of these hardly. And the misbehavior of loggers is something that really irritates a lot of people. And that's putting it nicely. Uh, but you bought off the top guy. And he is able to dole out cash to, as you mentioned, to enough uh, parliamentarians to maintain his position. Uh, ironically, after the riots uh, last November, that the Sogavare was on the verge of being uh, tossed out in a no-confidence vote. And then the Australians came and saved him. Uh, and now Sogavare has signed the deal with the Chinese that effectively allows uh, the Chinese military free reign in Solomon Islands. This is immensely unpopular. Uh, some of the main provinces have been, have been opposed to this sort of thing for a long, long time. Uh, and it is very unpopular with the mass of the body of the population. Uh, but he's gone ahead with it. And he's, Sogovar is probably going to try to sort of postpone the 2023 elections. Uh, and where have we seen this dynamic before? And because he would lose them almost certainly. Um, but the, the thing that one thing that I've and I've spent uh, some time looking into Chinese political warfare subversion is the thing that really juices it 
that really makes it work is the bribery. It's the under the table uh, activity. Um, you know, you send guys, you know, politicians, children to China, scholarships. You bring them to China, uh, bring lead, uh, politicians, leaders to China on study tours. And they show up and they get a bag of cash at the, the airport. Or it's an envelope of cash, actually. Everybody knows this. And there's so much bribery going on. And it never gets, it's known, but it never gets exposed. And that is a, a piece of the, the counter strategy that I'd like to see the, the civilized world help these islands with and help the people who want to stay sort of independent um, is we should be you know, getting our money's worth out of our $90 billion intelligence budget in the United States and maybe apply some of that to exposing this stuff to high heaven. So everyone on earth knows when a leader, say the guy like Sugavare, who uh, has been reported to have some very shady dealings, so that everybody in the Solomon Islands knows this, everyone in the Pacific knows this, and do what's so uh, give the people who sort of say want honest government give them some ammunition to work with but it's by not exposing this and it's not just solomon islands it's just about everywhere the chinese operate expose those under the table deals uh, that and that would be uh, very useful it's i uh, say it's a missing piece of the puzzle uh, that i wish we would pay more attention to yeah so well you know, expanding out from the Solomon Islands and looking at the U.S. and, and Taiwan and Japan and Korea, uh, what do you think these countries ought to do now? Uh, looking at at the the Chinese Communist Party's threat, particularly vis-a-vis -vis Russia's invasion of Ukraine, like what what do we in the West collectively need to do now? Well, we've got to get ready. Uh, and, and fast. And Ukraine, if there is one sort of a bright side to all of this, that it has woken people up to the the actual and immediate threat uh, and, and the possibility of this sort of uh, large-scale warfare that a lot of people thought was what those loser previous generations did, but we were, <laughs> we'd outgrown it. No, not quite. Uh, and that's coming. So, say, waking up is something that needs done. I think we sort of have, and then uh, get ready to deal with it. And Taiwan, of course, is a place that gets all the attention, uh, but it, you, know, you will find yourself having to respond. You, you never quite know where the, the next uh, outrage is going to take place. Uh, but this is going to, to require the things like we've seen, where you've got uh, a lot of these European countries trying to improve their military capabilities. Uh, that they have allowed to lapse because they thought they wouldn't need them. They thought the Americans would take care of them. Uh, the Japanese, same thing. Uh, they, they've got to you know, sort of get their military act together. And then you find that the one thing that really sort of causes a lot of trouble to these, the Russians, the, China, the Russias, the Chinas of the world, is they don't like facing alliances because uh, that makes it very hard for them. They're good at bullying people one-on-one, -on -one, but an alliance is something that really they, they hate it, and the Chinese in particular, uh, they, they say as much. So when you combine the resources uh, of sort of free nations, that you've got pretty, really a, a real impressive countermeasure on a military perspective, but that also leads to a political sort of tightening, which is very useful once again for... Uh, resisting this sort of aggression. And that also leads to an economic tightening uh, that 
is also what you need. So it's this combination of military, economic, political, uh, and you know, diplomatic is, is more a tool rather than uh, anything else. Uh, but that's where the, the effort needs to be applied and apply it where you think you're really going to need it. And Taiwan, once again, comes uh, immediately to mind. But it's, you know, it's interesting that the free world seems to have sort of woken up Let's see if it stays woken up. Uh, but but back to Taiwan. That's uh, you know really for Asia. You know I, I see Taiwan as is key to so much because of its the geography, uh, the and also the the political significance of it. That if you know, we can't keep 23, 24 million free people free, uh, despite you know U.S.'s powerful military, despite its political and economic power, financial resources its ability to apply pressure on China and its nuclear weapons. If it can't keep Taiwan free, well, everyone else is going to say, well, who can? So this is a place where some attention does need uh, to be applied. What do you think Taiwan is learning from this? Uh, that, that's the good question, because you know, we've, um, you know, what we've been talking about so far is we've talked about the problems the Russians have had. We've talked about what the Chinese are going to do as a result and how the Chinese are just going to get things Right, and uh, sort of as they see it, improve their odds for successfully taking Taiwan. Uh, but Taiwan looks at, Taiwan does have a hand, good hand to play if it gets some help. Uh, but this the, the Ukraine events, I think, have had the effect that Hong Kong had on Taiwan. Uh, that the Chinese strangling Hong Kong um, year and a half ago are still doing it. Um, that woke a lot of Taiwanese people up to the idea of that the threat was immediate, that it was coming. And what happened to Hong Kong was a foretaste of what would happen to them if they come under Chinese communist rule. So they've sort of woken up. And more. And you think, well, weren't they already woken up? Well, not as they should be. And so it has had, a, I think, a, an effect on Taiwan's uh, sense of things. And you know, it does seem to have uh, led to some more political support for improving uh, military capabilities, uh, even some t- initial talk of a civil defense scheme. Uh, there's this, and there's always been people around who've been trying to improve Taiwan's capabilities, uh, but this gives them a little more uh, support, a little more oomph, and, and even on the, the American side, uh, there seems to be a little more attention being paid to it as well. Uh, but Taiwan does need uh, some more economic support. I would immediately make a free trade agreement between the Americans and Taiwan uh, to help them sort of beef up their their economy more. But but back to Taiwan's defense. I say it does. You know, even if China does all of the recalculations, and that it could still find itself in a lot of trouble uh, if Taiwan sets up its defense the right way. And that's you know partly the result of. Uh, the, the capabilities of modern weapons. You know, if Taiwan is armed with adequate numbers of precision guided, precision guided, guided munitions, long-range missiles, anti-ship missiles, uh, and, and these are these are this is uh, basically a handsome word for something that you can shoot at something, and you will hit it for sure from a long distance away. Uh, and so you could find the Chinese invasion fleets getting sunk in its in the harbors uh, by Taiwanese missiles. Uh, that the Chinese Air Force cannot establish control over Taiwan because Taiwan's air defense is so good. Uh, Chinese cyber defenses and electronic defenses are such that uh, the Chinese can't shut them down. So China's leadership, uh, Taiwan's leadership still operates. Uh, it's able to marshal the, the population. Uh, you have a uh, potential for 
uh, the Taiwanese, um, improving their military, conventional military capabilities, uh, and also getting the citizens into the act. And that's where the civil defense scheme that's now being talked about a bit and an effort to improve the reserve forces in, in the way that the, the Ukrainians have shown that uh, an armed citizenry, a good reserve force, territorial force, a good conventional force even, uh, can make life difficult even for an overwhelmingly powerful military. Uh, so, And then the Americans, once again, if they see that the... Well, the economic sanctions that we've applied on Russia, we're going to have to apply uh, even better ones on the Chinese. That will go a long way as well towards shaping Chinese thinking. And the Chinese did not think that the, I think they didn't think uh, anyone would stand up uh, to a real show of force the way the Russians did. Well, it looks like people have, and maybe they would do the same for in the event of a Taiwan scenario. So if Taiwan, say, uh, can get its military configured the right way, get its population prepared, uh, and uh, get the necessary armaments, get the necessary political and economic support uh, from uh, its friends, uh, that it actually has pretty good odds. Uh, but it requires, uh, say, that civilized world to, to get its act together uh, and make it and actually decide for itself that it is that thus far and no farther that it is going to fight and defend. Uh, on behalf of Taiwan, and the Japanese need to get into the mix as well. Do you think that the U.S. should stop the strategic ambiguity policy? Like, should they say that they would defend Taiwan? Yeah, I think they need to. I think they need to make it clear that you know, say no more. Uh, this, you know, we have our core interests, we have our red lines, and this is it. Uh, you can do it quietly, uh, but. And what I would do is, rather than worry about the, the language that's used, I would just do everything that you would normally do, that, that you think you need to do to allow Taiwan to defend itself and to be willing to defend, uh, for us to be willing to defend Taiwan. Uh, just do it. You, and if anyone asks you, well, why are you doing it? The right answer is, well, you can see. Uh, that's why we're doing it. So joint military drills, that sort of thing. Well, yes. If you, you know, and I say in absolutely flooding the place with anti-ship missiles, with anti-aircraft missiles, anti-aircraft systems. Uh, how many do they need? Well, one more is usually the right number, but you need thousands of these things. Uh, work smart minds into the equation. And these are like not the dumb minds that float and wait for something to hit them, uh, but sail out and listen to an acoustic signature and go after it. Uh, but there's, a, I would say you would give them everything they need and more. And that's where Ukraine has shown uh, a huge vulnerability when fighting these kinds of wars is that people didn't realize how fast they expend these modern precision weapons. And you've got to make sure Taiwan has plenty of them and that it has a lot more than the, has what they need and has more than the Chinese uh, have in mind. But what you've mentioned about that joint training, that's key to everything. Uh, and that is that the Americans have to take the lead and have to break Taiwan out of this 40 years of isolation, uh, where we've had effectively no serious military-to-military -military engagement with them. Uh, and if you're not willing to do that, uh, then you've reduced your odds of success considerably. But if you break them out of the isolation, it improves their military capabilities, it improves their ability to work with us, uh, as well, and if we're going to supposedly defend them, it does help if we've had some familiarity with them before uh, we get started. It also has a huge psychological effect. 
on Taiwan's political class of citizenry to see that they actually do have some friends uh, who are willing to deal with them. And it will cause others to get into the mix. If we go first, the Japanese will also. Uh, and not just militarily, but economically. The Australians as well might get in, and there may be some others uh, who want in on the on the action or see that it as their duty is more like it. But the, you do have to, I say, address that that isolation. And we haven't done it. No administration has yet, uh, but it, it needs to be done and uh, needs to be done tomorrow. Um, also, a last word I'd put in for the Taiwan's defense is we talk a lot about hardware. But it's the people, it's the people in the military, the people who do the fighting and dying that need a lot more support than they have gotten to date. Uh, they need the respect uh, that you will give the, that they deserve. They need to pay them you know, what they deserve. Uh, and you'll be able to attract more volunteers into the military. But the, the personnel end of, the, of a national defense really needs to get a lot more attention in Taiwan than it has gotten to date. And it's an easy thing to deal with. Uh, but generally, it's not a vote getter, I suppose. Uh, but that's something that, that really does need uh, addressed because we hear a lot about the hardware and these, uh, these very effective weapons. Uh, but we don't talk about the human aspect of it uh, in a defense, but we, we need to do that. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Grant. And if people want to learn more, uh, where can they uh, read some of your thoughts on this stuff? Uh, well, most of my what I write is uh, published at Center for Security Policy. Uh, if you type me in Center for Security Policy into uh, into the the internet, uh, you'll you'll find it. Um, also, I think I have a, a Twitter thing, but I now and then use. I think it's at Newsham Grant or whatever the Twitter thing is. Um, you can see I'm not the the most self promoting guy on earth. Uh, and I am on LinkedIn as well. But if you type Grant Newsham into the internet, stuff will come up. But Center for Security Policy has most of it. All right, great. Uh, thanks so much, Grant. Sure, glad to be here. Thanks a lot. One thing I'm really getting from this is that the Chinese Communist Party is not really afraid to take on Taiwan in isolation, but what they are afraid of is these alliances. Oh, yeah. Have you seen how much they hate NATO? Yeah. Like they really, really like all of the propaganda coming out of the Chinese Communist Party lately is not just about how terrible America is, but it's about how terrible NATO is and connecting that through the U.S. Yeah, I'm sure that's going to convince everyone. Yeah. So basically what we in the West need to do is form a Megazord. Oh, gosh. Like uh, like Power Rangers. Basically. Yeah. So is NATO a Megazord? Uh Yes. And NATO's a Megazord, and then like the Quad is a Megazord. And, if and you then combine... AUKUS is a Megazord. Uh, yeah, exactly. So if you combine multiple Megazords, you get a Mega Megazord. Uh, yeah, is that the technical term? <laughs> that's, the, that's the technical term. I think I stopped watching Power Rangers before they got to the Mega Megazord yeah, part. I, I feel like also me knowing a Power Rangers reference really you know, like shows my age. Oh my gosh, you, you know what really upset me? So we were covering... Sweden and Finland wanting to join NATO. Yes. And I realized the prime minister of Finland is younger than me. How old is she? She's she's like, I think, 35 or something like that. Oh, well, she's not that yeah, much I know. Than she you. was elected at 34, something like that. Anyway, it 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 just it got to me, okay? Like she doesn't even I, know I understand. Power Rangers. I understand. No, people 
definitely no Power Rangers in their mid thirties. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That makes like, me feel slightly better. I know Power Rangers. Chris knows Power Rangers. My sister knows Power Rangers. Like, yeah, definitely. Okay. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the Prime Minister understands the the Megazord concept, and that's why she wants to join NATO. I think yeah, that makes that, sense. that must that makes sense. You know, I didn't realize that until very recently that the Power Rangers. Like all of the footage of them fighting and all that stuff was from the Japanese show. And the only things they filmed for the American version were the kids in the high school, like their non-costume selves, and then the voiceovers, obviously. Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a very clever show where like, like w w when the main characters are always in like a full face covering costume. The, right? Yeah, then, then you, you save so much money. any language, yeah. Oh gosh, yeah. Anyway, but... Speaking of mega megazords, I think <laughs> <laughs> that's a phrase you don't hear often, but go on. Well, I think that, you know, what Grant said about how China may not be afraid of and in fact may prefer to start a wider conflict immediately in terms of taking over Taiwan. I hadn't really considered that before. The idea that they might purposely get try to get North Korea involved or right. and you Russia. Know. So they, they're going to have their own megazord. So, like, this is not going to be an easy battle. It's going to be a really janky knockoff Megazord, though. That's true. Well, if, I, I, if, it, if I the components China are, uh, um, yeah, I mean, maybe the only thing worse than made in in China quality might be made in North Korea quality. Yeah, but I I also don't think that that's like I don't think we should rely on it being poor quality to like be like oh well we're going to succeed against it because look at all the poor quality stuff that's made in China that has flooded the markets around the world okay, that we're relying well, on. So yeah, but okay. Right. No, their their military has there are some quality issues, but also there are some issues where they're they've done a very capable job of building up, for example, the Navy. So, you know, it's it's not gonna be even if they have a janky knockoff megazord, it's not gonna necessarily be easy for our megazords to fight it. There's one more thing I want to talk about, which is not as fun as Mega Megazords. But I think it's a pretty interesting an important thing to bring up, which is China's elite capture of all these different countries, right? Like going after the elite with bribery and all these things. Right, right. I think the reason they didn't think about the backlash that would happen from that and the reason that it's kind of falling apart in some of these places is because they don't really have any experience with public, like the people being able to really influence what the government does. Right. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. like they, they can be corrupt in China and they don't face a real backlash from that. Yeah. I because mean, they control the, the media, they control the military, they control the organization department, which is what appoints everyone. Well, they control, you know, internal security apparatus, yeah, like everybody's, yeah. everybody's afraid. Right. So it works better in, you know, dictatorships right. than it does in free or countries where they're actually elections. So, right, yeah. you know, they can come in and bribe an African dictator and there's not a lot of backlash, even though people hate what's happening in their countries. Right. But in South Korea, it doesn't really work because the people, can, are, enough of them are sick and tired of it that, that they, they can elect yeah. somebody else. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think that's, that is a key part of this whole equation that it's kind of like how we talked about Russia made NATO great again. Uh, on America covered, and it's this is what the Chinese Communist Party is doing with their influence campaigns, with their elite capture, with their flooding uh, these countries with, 
you know, Chinese investments, Chinese infrastructure taking over, um, putting them in debt. Like it is something where they are creating their own nemesis. So in other words, the Chinese Communist Party is making megazords great again. Yeah, I mean, actually, that's true. They are like you would never think that like AUKUS would really happen, right? Or right. the Quad, the Quad tried to happen about a decade ago and then it kind of fizzled out and then now it's back. And it is because people are worried about the Chinese Communist Party. Exactly. No, you make a really salient point, but my point was that I wanted to end this on Megazords. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for watching China Unscripted. I'm Matt Ganezda. And I'm Megazords. <laughs> Talk to you next time.